Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I'm very happy to have, I think for the third time on, Ivan Eland. Uh, he is an American defense analyst and author. He is senior fellow and director of the Center on Peace and Liberty at the Independent Institute. And uh, I dare say we can put you in the libertarian... And now you say non-interventionist, of course, the enemies of liberty would call it isolationist. Is that a fair approximation of your viewpoint? Well, I don't consider myself an isolationist because I'm for a full interaction with other countries, uh, trade, investment, uh, cultural exchanges. It's just that when the state gets involved with bombing other people, uh, usually other governments or sometimes uh, civilians and rebel movements, that's when I have a problem. So I don't consider that isolationism. That The people who want to do these things usually say, well, if you're not for the bombing um, or attack that I'm for, you're an isolationist. So uh, I would say non-interventionist would be, uh, or strategic independence would be a better term than isolationism. Yeah, or just anti-violence. It's kind of a weird thing. It's like, I'm going to go down to the market. Well, that's called being an isolationist. Uh, I'm going to go and stab some guys. Oh, well, that's not being an isolationist. <laughs> like, it's very strange the way they use this language, but I guess to their benefit. Now, uh, obviously, I'd like to talk a little bit about Syria, but before we do that, um, I wonder if we could just dig into a little bit of what is so often taken for granted, which is the world's policemen, the responsibility to protect doctrine, the indispensable nation doctrine uh, that's been proposed by uh, UN Ambassador Samantha Powell and others. Of course, it's against international law, and it sounds like international law then doesn't want you doing good things and helping people and so on. But could we unpack that a little bit? Where did this idea of being the world's policeman, the indispensable nation, having a responsibility to protect, why does that fall to the U.S.? That certainly was not part of the, the origin of the, uh, of the state. Well, no, of course, uh, the founders of the United States were very uh, uh, – were very for or proponents of military restraint. They didn't. They wanted to trade with all countries and uh, have political relations uh, and intrigue with none, or and that meant military action as well. They wanted. They realized that the U.S. strategically is on the other side of the world for most of the violence. And uh, if the Britain has had a great strategic position off the shore of Europe, uh, we have an even better one because our motives. We have two big moats, and they're bigger, and we also have uh, relatively weak and friendly neighbors. And so uh, uh, our strategic position is pretty good. And if we don't go looking for trouble, we probably won't even get very many terrorist attacks because most of the terrorist attacks uh, either hit U.S. embassies or try to hit the U.S. homeland, which is difficult because of the distances. But nonetheless, like on 9-11, we saw they were spectacularly successful. But those attacks come from our intervention abroad, and, and if we pay it attention to the groups that are doing it, we would uh, find that out. But of course, uh, after 9-11, we didn't have such introspection. Uh, we just had um, calls for doing more of the same. Right. So what was it that brought about this? Um, I mean, you could really argue up, uh, up to the Second World War, certainly in the First World War, there was very little desire to get involved in what seemed like just another endless series of European conflicts. And in the Second World War, there was that as well. So what is it? I, mean, I remember reading that when, um, uh, when Wilson put in the draft for the First World War, uh, over 200,000 American men just kind of fled from it, thinking like, what, what a ridiculous thing to get involved with. There was a very strong sentiment towards this, which all seemed to change uh, at the close of the Second World War. Uh, at least that's my sort of take on it. I think it's to defer to your expertise in this area. But what do you think changed? What, what made it compelling in a way that it wasn't before? 
Well, after World War I, everyone was disgusted with the carnage because Woodrow Wilson essentially lied to the American people and said, you know, we're doing this to end all wars. Uh, we're going to make a great uh, international order afterwards, et cetera. But he knew full well, even when he got it, before he got into the war, that his allies, the British and French, were really had a secret plan to carve up the world after World War One and take uh, the Ottoman empires and the, and the Germans colonies who lost the war. And of course, he wanted to get into the war so he would have a, a place at the, at the peace table uh, so he could help shape the world after World War One. And of course, he really wanted the League of Nations. So he traded all that, traded uh, off a lot of stuff to get to it. And some of the things he traded off were uh, he originally didn't want to rub Germany's nose in it with a war guilt clause, with reparations, with uh, removing the Kaiser. But of course, he he did all that, and he actually insisted on removing the Kaiser, which then brought Hitler, helped bring Hitler to power. All those factors. So the United States always uses, and and I'm, the reason I'm going into this history is, we we always start history at World War II, and oh, you know, Neil Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister. He appeased Hitler, and that led to World War II. Well, of course, that's not really exactly what happened, but that's what. But they don't go far enough and say, why should the U.S. have gotten into World War I? Would Hitler have ever been a factor? And probably not, because Germany would have won that war. They would have adjusted uh, the boundaries, like all other European wars that the U.S. stayed out of for the most part. They would have adjusted the borders. Germany would have got a little more, everybody else would have got a little less, and we would have gone on, right? But of course, uh, World War II should really be called World War I Part II. And when we, if we trace history back to that far, then of course we get the opposite conclusion that we intervened in a war that made no sense, that had tremendous um, um, you know, unintended consequences, including the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, uh, the Cold War, and of course, World War II. And then, but after World War II, we took this Munich model where, you know, we figured Chamberlain appeased Hitler and that caused the problem. So anywhere the Soviet Union went in the Cold War, no matter how insignificant, Vietnam, Angola, uh, Nicaragua, Afghanistan, we felt we had to be there in some way, whether actually taking troops or supporting whoever they weren't supporting. And we still have a little of that. You see this in the Syrian uh, thing, and I know we'll get into that later, but we still, you have a lot of politicians say, well, the Russians are supporting the Syrians. We can't let them, you know, dictate the situation here. Well, it's not the Cold War anymore. And do we, the real question is, do we have strategic interests in Syria? The Russians do, I think, and we don't. And so therefore, it's not a contest between the two superpowers anymore. It's more a question of should we be there or not? And uh, the answer in my book is no. And I think we're taking the wrong paradigm from World War II and learning the wrong thing. And that is that aggression anywhere has to be stopped uh, because it will snowball and somehow make it a threat here thousands of miles away in, in the U.S., which, as I mentioned earlier, the founders realized has a very, has a very strategic position. Not everything is a Hitler, but you saw John Kerry with the Syrians. But we've done it to Muammar Gaddafi, we've done it to Milosevic, we've done it to Saddam Hussein, we demonize these people. And when they start calling them Hitler, and they have, in all those cases, then they start, they make them so bad that they have to bomb them. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are there are two little factors I would add into World War One, uh, and the reason we talked about World War One is just to realize the dominoes that are set in motion, the unintended consequences of these kinds of interventions. The first, of course, as as you mentioned, is that the Allies and the and the Germans were were fighting to exhaustion. Uh, they were almost out of of money. They were almost out of human beings, and so they would have all, I think, just gone home because neither neither side had the ability to impose any kind of calamitous peace. Uh, treaty on the other, or peace terms on the other. When the Americans came piling in on the Western Front, uh, it gave uh, uh, France and England the, the, the capacity to impose this kind of uh, horrible treaty of Versailles where Germany would have paid reparations into the 80s, uh, 1980s. They, they had no army, no air force, limited to 100,000 troops and so on. So the fact that they piled, America piled in gave uh, the, the Allies such overwhelming strength and power over Germany that they were able to impose this uh, disastrous treaty, which, which uh, you know, was a huge spark for um, to pay the reparations off, they hyperinflated the currency, which destroyed the middle class and paved the way for Hitler and so on. And the other thing, of course, is that because when the Americans piled in on the Western Front, Germany knew they couldn't fight a two-front war. They had to get rid of Russia on the Eastern Front. And to do that, of course, they funded uh, Lenin and armed him and gave him lots of money and sent him through Finland to go start a revolution. So in really, in many ways, the Cold War can be traced back to uh, and the Second World War and the Cold War can be traced back to, though not morally laid at the feet of the American intervention policy in, in the First World War, which, of course, you know, as you know, Wilson was, was voted in to not go into war. He specifically said that. And then, of course, he changed it once the vainglorious idea of moving human beings around like chess pieces took a hold of him. But it is tragic. And so much, of course, of what happened in the, in the, in the 20th century can be traced back to the First World War. Uh, and it really was a huge break with uh, America's uh, past, I would say. Yes, and I think uh, uh, the, there's a similar parallel to the situation in Syria now. If, as you mentioned, in World War One, both sides were exhausted. I mean, if one had won over the other one, and Germany probably might have eked out a, a victory, but everyone was so exhausted, it would be a 15-round decision rather than a knockout, and therefore you adjust the borders and go on. But of course, uh, one of the things that, in addition to uh, the Germans uh, helping Lenin out, you also had the Allies bribing the Russians to stay in for the second uh, uh, second front. And one of the reasons that Lenin, Lenin said if it hadn't been for the war and the exhaustion of the war in Russia, the Bolsheviks never would have taken over. And so the Kerensky government, uh, the British and the French, um, uh, kept the Kerensky government in the war. And, of course, uh, because they stayed in the war, uh, that's how the Bolsheviks ended up uh, uh, taking power in Russia. So there's a number of factors there. And then, of course, after World War One, the Allies, including the U.S., sent troops to Russia to battle the, the Bolsheviks, which created bad blood for decades after that. And so uh, but now what we see in Syria is a, a, a similar situation. The United States should just stay out of it and let these two... Uh, sides, Assad, who is admittedly a tyrant, a dictator, and a butcher, uh, battle out the al-Qaeda-dominated rebels, which could be even worse uh, than al-Qaeda, or excuse me, Assad, if they would happen to get control of all of Syria. But I think what we're going to see is a civil war for a long time, and it may even be a tripartite civil war with the Kurds, because you have the same basic ethnic groups and uh, um, ethno-sectarian groups as Iraq does. And so I think uh, U.S. should stay out of it when your enemies are fighting each other. Uh, and I think that applies to anyone. We should, that should have, uh, we should have stayed out of World War I and let them exhaust themselves. Right. 
So before we dip into some of the current events in Syria, uh, I think it's reasonable to dip back a little bit into the sort of post-First World War colonial period where these pretty arbitrary, uninformed lines were drawn uh, in Iraq and Syria and other countries by by the British and the French and, and so on, which were not drawn along lines of culture or religion or race or anything like that. They're just sort of these Franken countries pieced together uh, on maps without particularly detailed local knowledge. Uh, to what degree do you think that is creating uh, some of these problems and, and this desire for um, you know, rebellion, uh, revolution, uh, the instability that occurs. These are not organic countries, and, and not like all organic countries are perfect, but they seem to be a lot more stable than than what's going on in the Middle East. Well, I think that has a, a big role, and Iraq is a totally artificial country, Syria is a totally artificial country, Lebanon's a, Lebanon is a totally artificial country, and of course then you have the Palestinian problem where you have a perceived occupation of a, of a Western power. People, The Arabs regard Israel is a Western neo-colonialist uh, uh, regime. And you also have the legacy of colonialism in a lot of these places because the British and the French took over from the Ottomans after World, after the Ottoman Empire uh, folded with, uh, finally folded with World War I. Uh, and so the, the colonialism, and, and it imbues everything. And that's why people don't like U.S. intervention because it's just perceived as another colonial power. So not only do we have the uh, problem of these are all artificial states have the 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 resistance to colonialism that we that we find uh, which is rooted in in history as well. All this goes back to World War One. Uh, I think uh, a lot of it, uh, both the colonial colonialism and also the uh, well, of course, the colonialism goes. Uh, Further back, but if you go to World War One, you see the British and the French taking over from the Ottomans. And then the second factor is that uh, these states uh, were drawn by the British and French, and uh, they have all sorts of different ethnic and sectarian mixes, and the groups don't get along with each other. And uh, what ha- usually happens is in these in, uh, in Iraq and Syria and Lebanon is one group tries to use the apparatus of the state, including the security forces, to oppress the others, and the other groups resist. That's what we saw in Iraq after the U.S. invaded. And of course, uh, you know, uh, we're getting the, uh, the same thing in Syria as well. So, uh, you know, the, these are unstable states. About the only thing you can do with them, I think, probably is decentralize them so that the central government is so weak that the countries, you know, the different groups provide their own security and judicial systems. Uh, and that, but, uh, you know, that's, that's a topic for another day, I guess. Oh, juicy topic. Let me just make a note there. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good topic. Now, what is um, what is Russia's uh, interest uh, in Syria and the region? Why are they um, so neck deep uh, in this in this conflict? Well, I think it goes back. You know, people say Putin really resents the United States. One of the reasons that Russia resents the U.S. is because after the Soviet Union collapsed, and of course this gets no press in the in the in the West at all. The United States promised Mikhail Gorbachev they would not expand NATO, and of course that NATO is a hostile alliance to the Soviet Union, and of course the the United States has expanded NATO right to the borders of the Soviet Union, or what is now Russia. The Balkan states are members, Romania, Bulgaria, all those countries over there are now members. And uh, so it's not so much that the Russians uh, fear an imminent attack from NATO, uh, as the, they feel that they're, you know, everything fell apart on them, and that the U.S. took advantage of it. 
They also feel that in the case of Libya, uh, the United States and the West said, hey, we're just going to prevent a bunch of civilians from getting killed by Gaddafi's uh, forces. Well, of course, uh, this is an example of where war can get out of hand with unintended consequences, and you can get dragged into something. Of course, the, the uh, mission creep became, well, let's get rid of Gaddafi. And they got lucky and did that without having to send in ground troops. But uh, it may not be so good and so so easy in Syria because of all the ethnic uh, groups. Then you've got to stop a, a civil war, an ethno-sectarian civil war, after the first war with Assad is over, even if he's toppled. And you don't have that problem in uh, Libya. You had a few tribes, and there's still a tribal problem there. But uh, I don't think the divisions are as great. So I think, you know... Um, it's really, uh, uh, you know, these, these things have a lot of unintended consequences, that, which are, of course, unintended. Right. And, of course, uh, I mean, Russia, after being invaded from the West twice in, in, in costing lives that, that we, it's hard to imagine. I'm reading about the, the, what occurred on the Eastern Front uh, in Stalingrad and, and the degree of losses that Russia suffered by basically cannon firing peasants into the withering machine gun of, of fire of the uh, of the Germans. Uh, I mean, they really needed those buffer states. And so when NATO was extended to those buffer states that they grabbed, I don't think they were particularly imperialistic at the end of the Second World War. They're just tired of being invaded and needed some buffer states. Then, of course, NATO extends there. That's going to create a lot of conflict. Would you also argue that it seems to me like intense, irrational absolutes that you see in sectarian groups and religious groups and uh, ethnic groups, that these, these intensely absolutist irrationalities uh, almost seem to demand, I mean, you were saying a very weak central government, it seems to me they almost seems to demand a very heavy-handed kind of uh, government. In other words, well, you fear me more uh, than, than the other group, uh, or I'll keep everyone in line and therefore you won't, there won't be a civil war. Would you say that's at all a factor in the politics of well, the Middle East? I think if when you have a fractured state among ethno-sectarian groups, if you want to keep it as a state, it can only be ruled by a strong man. Saddam Hussein, uh, Assad, the Yemeni ruler, the, 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 the uh, guys in charge of Bahrain. But, but um, really, if you, if you don't want to do that, then you almost have to decentralize it so nobody is, nobody is threatened. It's either all or nothing. Uh, this idea that we're going to have a shared power or something uh, is really never works. Uh, and you really have to have either decentralization or you have to accept the fact that the dictator is the only one that can, um, you know, harness all the problems. The other thing about Russia is um, to the, it's modern interest, and it goes back to the NATO thing. Syria is their one last ally, and they don't want sand kicked in their face because Syria is their only Middle Eastern ally now, and they have a small naval base there. I mean, they could probably do without a Syrian ally, but they want to play in the Middle East, and, and, and uh, they've had all their other allies either turn to NATO or uh, be eliminated and so, so uh, you know, go somewhere else so, so, um, because of the end of the Cold War that uh, I think, uh, you know, it's pretty important. They want to have some, they want to be a great power and be respected, and I think that's really the issue here in Syria, that the U.S. has uh, done so much over time to uh, make them a second-rate power. And uh, they don't want to, you know, that's part of it. Right. You, you wrote recently, and I, I thought it was a really good passage 
uh, chipping away at the moral claims that the U.S. is making, basically that terrible things are happening, therefore we need to intervene. I wonder if you could talk about a few of the far more egregious catastrophes and genocides that the uh, U.S. has not intervened in uh, recently. Well, I think, uh, you know, this proves the hypocrisy of the position because the Congo uh, civil war has uh, killed five million people and it's still ongoing. We're not doing much about that. Uh, there was a Sudanese uh, civil war uh, and George Bush did eventually try to broker a, a peace between South Sudan, South Sudan and uh, Sudan. And that is an example of a decentralization or partition uh, which has at least, there's still a lot of tension there, but at least uh, the, the civil war has stopped. But we didn't invade with troops. I have no problem with mediating if the two sides want to negotiate, even in the Syrian civil war, but that's not what we're doing. Of course, we're, we're trying to get in on one side. So Sudan, we really didn't do anything militarily. Rwanda, uh, 800,000 people uh, were killed in a civil war, did nothing there. And, it, and in fact, you know, we say this chemical weapons uh, uh, international norm because it's not Assad has not violated international law by doing this surprisingly, but this international norm uh, we helped Saddam Hussein uh, actually violate the the norm and the law uh, during the Iran Iraq war. It was a bitter war, and we were very scared that the Iranians were going to take over. Uh, you know, would win the war. And they had had a fundamentalist uh, Shiite Islamic revolution. And that was really the first fundamentalist revolution that was uh, the modern day uh, fundamentalist revolution, which had occurred. So we were very scared about that. So we knew that uh, Saddam Hussein was in desperate straits. And uh, he, we knew he was going to use chemical weapons, but we gave him the intelligence to use four times to, to gas the Iran, Iranians. And uh, so the Iranians are no favor of poison gas since it's been used on them. And then, of course, in 1988, uh, Saddam Hussein gassed his own people, the Kurds, within his country. And uh, the United States not only didn't protest, uh, but gave him a, a, a billion dollar loan short six months after that. So when we say we're sticking up for this uh, a norm against horrible weapons, we actively helped a person uh, use these weapons uh, the last time around that, that, that it came up. So it's a, the, the, um, the sanctimoniousness of this is a bit uh, apparent. Yeah. And it is chilling. You know, I, we all think of these big geopolitical things, control of oil and other resources and so on. But it seems, I, you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you seem to have hinted at the possibility that there's just a certain personal vanity involved on the part of uh, Barack Obama, that he made these statements, uh, the, the red line, the famous red line statement, he used these as red line, we can't allow to be crossed and so on. Um, and now he's going to, he's either going to walk back that statement or he has to escalate. And you drew a parallel between what Hussein said with regards to chemical weapons and what John F. Kennedy said um, with regards to the missiles in Cuba, which compared to the U.S. missiles in Turkey didn't fundamentally alter the balance. But it became this crazy, world-threatening standoff because of a speech that couldn't be withdrawn. Do you think that's much of a factor here? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's personal vanity of Barack Obama and simply because – 
I do mention the John F. Kennedy uh, example, and there have been other examples where presidents have sort of said something that they shouldn't have done. Now, Eisenhower is the opposite. He would be very careful. He would say, oh, that's not a crisis. And of course, he only intervened one time during his whole presidency, at least overtly. He was too big on the covert operations. But that's an op- that's how you can handle these things if you really know what you're doing. I think Barack Obama probably uh, is he's just not very competent. Uh, but I think presidents can box themselves into these types of things simply by because everyone uh, is concentrating what the president of the United States says since he has the most powerful army in the world. And, you know, when we have a huge hammer, everything looks like a nail. Now, of course, what we should be doing in this case of Assad is not, not attacking them militarily. You, there's all sorts of things you could do short of that uh, to, uh, you know, say it's not good to gas your people. And uh, I think probably this was a rogue element or even it wasn't a rogue element. It was a really stupid move on the part of Syria because they really don't need to use, to have these weapons. And I think the Russians are doing a valuable thing by taking advantage of Kerry's uh, thing about uh, uh, well, if they get rid of them, then we won't have to attack. So the Russians and the Syrians both hopped on that, and then UN got UN um, uh, Secretary General hopped on it as well. So perhaps we can reach an end to this uh, conflict if Assad just gives up his weapons and stores them. He really doesn't need them to defend his country. Uh, they're not that useful except on a defensive basis on the battlefield. Uh, so uh, I think that's one area where you could do something short of this. But I think presidents box themselves in with speeches and bellicose rhetoric because the United States always seems to have to respond militarily. And when you make statements like John F. Kennedy did and uh, Barack Obama did, uh, you have to watch what you say as president because people are going to hold you to it. And if this was a mistake by John Kerry, I don't think it is because I think uh, he discussed this with uh, the Russians uh, at the G8 summit as well, back in the back room there. But uh, if it is a slip of the tongue, John Kerry uh, really needs to watch it too because uh, these people are, are people pay attention to what the president of the United States says, and you can easily get yourself into a big problem. And I think Barack Obama hasn't been very competent in this uh, whole mess. Yeah. Now, of course, it seems that this idea that there's just going to be a few limited bombs lobbed into Syria, I mean, it's not going to do anything that I can imagine. Uh, other, I mean, and the, the possibility of there being problems coming out of it, oh, we accidentally hit a few Russian soldiers, where well, suddenly you have a huge problem uh, on your hands. The idea that they can target and find and, and strike at these weapons or, or punish the people involved with any degree of reliability and also without throwing these weapons up into the air uh, doesn't, doesn't seem to me possible. And I agree with you. I mean, what use are chemical weapons against guerrilla warfare? Guerrilla warfare is, takes place in hiding among civilians, uh, people darting in and out of doorways dressed like everyone else. I don't see what possible value or use it would be. It would seem to me that the rebels would have a great deal of use for it to, to get the U.S. to come and intervene. And, of course, I think the Russians fairly conclusively established that the last chemical attack that occurred in Syria in March of this year uh, they had a 100-page report that's been released uh, where they seem to quite conclusively prove that it was, in fact, the rebels uh, who released this, perhaps with the hopes of gaining some external intervention. Yes, I think the press has been very biased in not reporting the atrocities of the rebels. Some of these are very nasty characters. They're affiliated with uh, uh, al-Qaeda and other uh, you know, Islamist uh, terrorist groups, etc. And, uh, we, of course, 
uh, our media sort of takes the line of uh, the cues from our government, even though we're supposed to have a free media, but a lot of the major media sources, I think, at least uh, take their cues from the government uh, because they get information from the government, preferred information. And uh, so I think they've taken us, you know, how evil Assad is. And there's no question about that Assad is not a, you know, a Democrat or whatever. But I think they've ignored the the um, the atrocities of the rebels and that sort of thing. And I think, uh, as you were saying, what is this going to really uh, accomplish? You know, in Kosovo, if we go back to Kosovo in 1979, they had ethnic cleansing by Milosevic and the Serbs against the ethnic Albanians in what was then a province of um Yugoslavia, or, or yeah, Yugoslavia uh, and Serbia. And what happened was we started bombing uh, after some ethnic cleansing had occurred. Well, Milosevic said, well, I have nothing to lose. So he has stepped up the uh, ethnic cleansing. Most ethnic cleansing was done after NATO already started bombing. Same thing, could, a similar uh, thing could happen here with uh, Assad if we hit him with a, a small strike, and Kerry says it's supposed to be a very small strike, which I don't know why you would tell your opponent in a war uh, that, you know, I'm not for the strike, but if you're going to strike, why would you say, well, this is really meaningless? And the reason that, of course, they have to do that is because the American people do not want this, and uh, the American people will not support a long war or an in-depth war. And so, therefore, on the one hand, they have to say that to the people. Well, if you say that, uh, to say to basically say to the American people, well, you know, we're not going to be going in here with any heavy troops or or um, heavy firepower. This is just kind of a slap on the wrist. Well, if you tell Assad, then he knows that the that the U.S. is in a weak position. So what does he do after the first attack? He said, well, you know, I I'm gonna in in the Arab world, you get a lot of points not for winning wars, but to stand standing up to a stronger opponent because they're used to standing up to Israel all the time. And um, so what would Assad, <clears throat> excuse me, what would Assad do? He might say, well, I'm going to get political points out of this, get more prestige. It'll help me out in my civil war. So I'm just going to, I'm either going to gas my, the, you know, a bigger gas attack to just say in your face, or if I don't want to take that chance, I'm just going to start shelling with conventional weapons, uh, which he has been doing anyway uh, in some of these areas. Uh, and of course, you can kill a lot more people with shells than you can with chemical weapons. Uh, and so, you know, it may accelerate the civilian deaths because we did this strike. And certainly one other factor, I think, um, is that the U.S. Uh, could take terrorist attacks from a general uh, increase in the terrorism level, not necessarily from civilian, uh, from Assad or even Hezbollah, but just uh, you know, this is our fourth attack on an Islamic country in the Middle East, and we keep saying, well, we're not at war with Islam. Well, we've been at war recently four times. So, of course, you know, people think that's nonsense overseas. We might believe it ourselves, but uh, they don't believe it overseas. So, uh, and what happened during the Iraq war was uh, you saw a jet terrorism worldwide spike. So all the jihadists out there and all the people who are Islamists uh, may become Islamist terrorists uh, because they're mad about the... Um, U.S. Uh, striking Syria, so they go hit a U.S. embassy, or they try to uh, attack here, like the Times Square bomber or the underwear bomber, uh, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I think uh, yeah, in multiple reasons, this is a really bad idea. Yeah, I mean, as far as yeah. I understand it, the the whole purpose of Al Qaeda is to provoke the U.S. into spending so much blood and treasure uh, in this unwinnable global 
made up conflicts that they simply go broke the way the Russians did in Afghanistan in the 1980s. The CIA trained them. How do you bring down an empire? You provoke them into a lopsided war where they're spending uh, far more than you are, and then they go broke, and then they go home. Because that was the lesson that the Arab world learned with the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the carve-up of the German uh, uh, German uh, overseas possessions, and also at the end of the Second World War, uh, when, when the Allies uh, abandoned pretty much all of their existing holdings because they were broke from the Second World War. This is something that uh, besieged and beleaguered uh, uh, recipients of yes, uh, colonialism as, have as learned uh, bitterly. Sorry, go ahead. As you mentioned, that the current example where these same... Uh, jihadists uh, over uh, caused the entire fall of the Soviet Union, or at least so they think, by the by the handing the Soviets a loss in Afghanistan. So uh, they see this uh, example many times, and uh, they think they can do it again. Seems to be working to me. I don't think the U.S. could be could be following the jihadist recipe for uh, what they want uh, any closer if they tried. I mean, th- th- to do the opposite would be close down all these militaries, 700 plus military bases and bring your troops home and focus on deregulating and and, and uh, lowering taxes and, and getting your economy back going and return back to the way it was. Instead, you're falling into every single bear trap uh, that you could possibly find laid by uh, these these uh, people, uh, in terms of just getting involved in unwinnable conflicts, destroying your economy, uh, uh, posturing rhetoric, uh, getting yourself caught into endless trouble, and provoking more hornets' nests overseas, filled by crazy people who will stop at nothing to retaliate. And sorry, I don't know, I don't want to do a minor rant, but it's just kind of frustrating that they say, "Here's what you want to do," and America's like, "Hey, we're on it. Let's do that until we go broke." Well, even uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, said that it was easy to provoke George Bush into, you know, doing what he wanted him to do. But of course, that didn't deter George Bush from from doing it. The problem I think you have is that politicians play to their home audience and sometimes uh, falling into the enemy trap is useful back home. And I think it was for Bush and to some extent it's it's, uh, the same for Obama. I don't know if it will be in this case because I think Overwhelmingly, the American people have really, uh, you know, become wiser after the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and they're saying, "Listen, let's not get baited into this." I mean, all you have to do is say, "I think you can ruin their whole argument by saying, what for intervention in Syria by saying, well, like the last three have worked out so wonderfully. How do you think this is going to work out any better for us?" Yeah, particularly since there hasn't been, you know, when I was an entrepreneur, every time we do a project, we do a project postmortem. We say, what went well, what went badly? I mean, the only way you could possibly say things would go any different uh, is if America and the military and the the civilians and the military industrial complex had all rigorously examined those two wars and said what went well, what went badly and why. But that kind of looking backward and and the postmortem never seems to happen. So nothing is going to change here. So I'll, you know, I'll go on there. I don't think that anything's going to happen. I think they may lob a few bombs, but I don't think it's going to escalate from there. I think that there is a certain sense of jaw-dropping, are you kidding me? We cannot be doing this again when it comes to the American population uh, and the view. Uh, now, of course, they're in the aftereffects of war, which is a lot more sobering than that jingoistic, let's light up the sky stuff that happens before the bill, the butcher's bill, the economic bill becomes due. A lot, of course, I think, of what's happened to the American economy is 
the, the natural destruction of the free market and of wealth. 40% of American wealth destroyed over the last four or five years. Yeah, some of it's the Federal Reserve and the housing and this and that. A lot of it has to do with the cost of war and the destruction of human and uh, economic capital. So now starting another war is okay. If you've had some time to get over the last one, you can get back into crazy jingoistic uh, wave the flag fervor. But the war exhaustion, I think, is so palpable that I can't imagine that Americans would have anything. I mean, they may trudge unwillingly towards this, but it's nothing uh, like it was in, in 01 or even 03. You know, that I agree with you to, to mostly, but there's one factor that's different, uh, say, than Vietnam. The reason that people uh, protested Vietnam, it was all draped in moral language, but the real reason was that middle class uh, students were, and other, other uh, uh, people of the same age were getting dragged off to, out of their potential career as dentists, lawyers, doctors, uh, you know, attorneys, whatever, and they were being dragged to Vietnam to die. And I think we have, we've eliminated that link. I'm not for a draft, but it's definitely, um, it, look, how long have we been in Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh, you know, years and years. And there hasn't been the type of intense, there's been opposition, and we have a passive opposition to these things now. Uh, but what we really have is a group of professional soldiers who a lot of them come from military families. They, they volunteered for this. And uh, we all feel guilty about making them do it. But no one is screaming that their kid is over there involuntarily in some faraway place dying for no reason. And I think that we can still get into problems because we don't have. Uh, that type of opposition. We have a very passive opposition. So the, the politicians don't feel the heat of the moment. Now, I think maybe they are feeling some heat when they went back to their town hall meetings that the president doesn't feel. But these, a lot of these House members, when they come in, and maybe even the, maybe this won't even pass the Senate, I don't know. But I think uh, there is there is some uh, anger out there uh, that he's even thinking about doing this, and justifiably so. But um, so I'm still a little leery that we couldn't get soaked into this. And also, one, one, one other thing, uh, McCain, uh, to get, he's, he, he's a, perceived as a very important uh, person to have on the president's side. Well, he's already extracted some concessions from the, from the president by more aid to the rebels. And also, he wants these strikes to be heavier than just uh, a punitive strike to slap the hand of Assad. He wants a de actual de degradation of the Syrian armed forces. Well, when you start talking about that, that uh, really can suck you in because what if that doesn't work? Then your goals have changed. Then you say, well, gee whiz, that didn't work. Now our prestige is really on the line. So even if there's no support back home, and I think that is a major factor, hopefully that will do as you say, and we won't get sucked into this. But there are other factors which make it uh, at least plausible that we still might yeah. Yeah. And of course, I mean, with, with the fog of war, we, everybody, it seems to me, everyone who goes into a war thinks that they're just fighting marionettes or statues or something. But of course, what the enemy is going to do is something that you really can't predict. And, and I mean, if I were an evil guy and a dictator in Syria, first thing I would do is I would move a whole bunch of women and children to wherever I thought was most likely that was going to get struck. And then I would show all the footage to the world saying, look, America has lopped these bombs in, killed all these, you know, win the war of PR, which is, you know, is important in many ways as, as the ground war. We don't know what these people are going to do. We don't know what's going to 
come out of that. You know, you let slip the dogs of war. They run everywhere. And sometimes they attack you and your own kids. Uh, it, it is really the vanity of thinking you can just go march in there with bombs or lob them from uh, from the sea and, and know what's going to happen or where they're going to land or how it's going to be perceived or how it's going to be spun uh, is quite mad. And I, yeah, I, I do think, so do you think that there's some possibility that this will continue and also may escalate? Well, I think there's a possibility of it, but as you point out, uh, there's absolutely no support in it for the United States from people of both parties. But there's enough wiggle room nowadays where politicians can get themselves into trouble. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, Lyndon Johnson never had to escalate the Vietnam War. He won a tremendous uh, landslide in 1964, but he was still scared of being called a coward by Robert Kennedy and some of the conservatives. So he escalates this war, and of course, he, he could have just walked away from it. At that point, nobody even heard of Vietnam, or most Americans hadn't heard of it. He had pledged not to send uh, U.S. boys over to fight in uh, Asian rice paddies, or whatever he said, uh, similar to that. I don't, I don't have the exact quote, but, and, and yet, after the election was over, he felt compelled to not show weakness uh, toward the Soviet Union and the world uh, you know, presidents get wrapped up into this U.S. prestige argument. So whenever I hear prestige arguments, as we're hearing now in Syria, that means they have no other arguments. And also it means that uh, we're talking imperial language here, that we always have to, you know, maintain our prestige. Of course, U.S. would have had more prestige had it gotten out of Vietnam uh, or never escalated in the first place because uh, U.S. prestige was at, a, was at a low in 1973 when we pulled out of Vietnam, uh, and, it, and it had been going down for some time in, in the world's eyes. So uh, presidents get in their own little world about this, uh, the prestige arguments and stuff, and so some of them do really dumb things even when they're do they don't have any support. There was no support in 1964 for escalating the Vietnam War, and yet Johnson felt that he had to do it uh, to not be a coward. And I think Barack Obama, liberal Democrats especially, uh, have a problem with this. If, if, if you had a conservative, a bellicose conservative in there, you know, it, they're not as vulnerable to being egged on. But of course, the Republicans like McCain, some of the Republicans are egging Barack Obama on saying, you know, yeah, we've got to stick up our prestige or you don't want to, we don't want to be seen as weak or a coward and that sort of thing. So there's always potential for uh, to get ensnared. And this pre president on this issue has not uh, um, shown that he can stay out of the trap, I don't think. Yeah, and of course, tragically, uh, particularly among celebrities, the anti-war left is completely AWOL when it comes to this particular issue. Um, you know, they were very keen on protesting um, imperialistic or violent uh, violations of international law like aggression when George Bush was hurling them around. But with Barack Obama, they are... Uh, <laughs> not even distant memories and they're nowhere to be seen waving their placards, which I think will, uh, you know, diminish, I think, the possibility of getting some momentum with the anti-war stuff. But I hope, I hope that they don't do anything. I hope that everyone recognizes it's either going to be brutal yet ineffective or it's going to be the start of an incredibly slippery slope down towards another complete disaster. And I would imagine close to the end of the U.S. economy in its current state. So I hope that people will recognize that um, it is sometimes the most noble thing to walk back 
premature statements uh, when on the other side is death and economic destruction. So I hope that they will. But listen, uh, I could chat all night. I really appreciate you coming coming back on the show. It's always a real pleasure. Um, uh, I like to advertise this uh, when I have guests. It's like, hey, Freedom Main Radio, now with facts, <laughs> always a plus. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, is there a place on the web that you would like uh, to, to mention where people can get hold of your writings? I know you're at uh, independent.org. Are there any other places where people can get a hold of your writings? Yeah, well, I have a new book out called The Failure of Counterinsurgency, Why Hearts and Minds Are Seldom One. And, yet, of course, the best place to get that is Amazon or Barnes & Noble uh, uh, on those sites. Probably Amazon is even better. Uh, they have all books, I think, but uh, or most of them. So uh, it, it really goes into why uh, great powers such as the U.S. should really be careful when they try, try to do these counterinsurgency wars. But uh, I also... Uh, write, uh, I'm a contributor uh, periodically for Huffington Post and also every week I write a column on antiwar.com Well thank you very much, we'll link everything that we can find, I really appreciate your time and thank you so much for breaking it down to uh, to the general public, I, I hope that we can do what we can to, to stop uh, this uh, bloody tide from advancing any further, thank you Ivan Allen so much I really appreciate your time. Thank you